Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians in chapter 2. If you're joining us for the first time, we'll share a little bit about what we've been talking about the last several weeks and the overall theme. I'm going to read the text with just a few verses uh, from chapter 2, 11 to 14 this morning. But before we read that, I always find it's good to kind of settle in your mind, okay, where are we? What are we talking about? What's the context? The overriding theme of Galatians is called to be free. Now, that sounds really good. I think all of us would just want to be free. (laughs) And Paul's going to address two ways that we put ourselves into bondage. One is by legalism, Phariseeism, rule-keeping. And it's very easy for any of us to do that because we're very good at creating lists, keeping our lists, checking them off, and feeling good about ourselves. So self-righteousness is a way to really put yourself into bondage. Another way to put yourself into bondage is by self-indulgence. It's kind of like the other ditch you just went into swerving to get out of this one. Now I'm in this other ditch of self-indulgence. I just want to make myself happy. And so you do what you want to do, and you put yourself into bondage. And the answer to this is Christ. It's always the answer. And grace is what we're called to live in, not in legalism, not in license to do whatever we want, but to live in the freedom that God has called uh, called us to in grace. And that's really the overriding message. And, and Paul is, he's, he writes biographically and he tells a story about something that happened in his life and he continues that into chapter 2 and verse 11 that we're, we're going to look at. And he talks about a very awkward situation. You're going to see what I'm talking about when you read this. You say, boy, I just want to get out of that room <laughs> because this is really awkward. And it's a confrontation that he has with Peter. So Peter, you can imagine this, that Paul and Peter have a conflict in front of everybody else. It's, uh, it's like mom and dad are having a fight. Let's all get out of the room. <clears throat> what do we do? How do we respond? And uh, <clears throat> we're going to read verse 11 to 14 of chapter 2, have prayer, and then jump into this text. When Cephas, another name for Peter, when, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned or guilty. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, Even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Father in heaven, you know our hearts. You know every heart in this room. You know how we struggle to live out the faith we say we believe. 
You know how every one of us is vulnerable to hypocrisy. Help us to see it, to be aware of it. Give us grace to confront it in our own lives first and then to lovingly confront it in the lives of others. Above all else, it is our desire to please you in all that we do. Help us, Lord, as we open your word and listen to your voice this morning. Help me, Lord, as I speak. Help us as we listen. In Jesus' name, amen. So what would you do if you were in such an awkward situation? You're in, you're in a room with a bunch of people. And something's really wrong because there is what we call hypocrisy taking place because what people are doing is not in line with what we say we believe. In other words, we say we believe this, but everything we're doing conflicts with what we say. That's hypocrisy. And this is really difficult because in this room, you've had this discussion before. In fact, we read the previous verses in chapter 2. We know that there has been a council in Jerusalem to discuss this very matter. Uh, we've gone over this before, so this is, this is already a public matter. And they're going on with it. They're going on with it. And, and the problem is in leading this hypocrisy is, is probably the person you respect more than anyone else in the world. That'd be Peter. And Peter is like the apostle. He is the leading apostle. He is the most noted and recognized apostle. He's certainly the most outspoken one. And so Peter is probably with great boldness uh, doing this that is wrong. And not only is Peter leading the way, Barnabas, his name is mentioned, so that even Barnabas has been led astray. Now, Paul's, Paul's relationship to Barnabas was, Barnabas was the one that took him under his wing, that mentored him, that taught him, that helped him. It's like he was a spiritual father to Paul. So here you have the most respected leader in the church, and you have also the one that is personally invested in you. Now, it isn't a private matter anymore. Otherwise, we'd probably go to them in private. But it is a public matter because we've talked about this over and over again. We've already decided these things, but they continue to lead in this hypocrisy. What would you do? Well, I'd probably run is, run is a good one. <laughs> Get out of the room. i got something else to, to do today. Do you speak up? Do you say something? Uh, is it so important that you do? And I would say this, that if you live the Christian life for any amount of time, you're going to come into the situation where you face hypocrisy. You're going to face it in your own life, and you're going to face it in the lives of others. Now, it's a lot easier to, to see a hypocrite. I mean, we're pretty good at identifying hypocrites, aren't we? I hear probably that more than anything else of why people don't go to churches because it's so full of hypocrites. <laughs> I always say there's room for one more. Come join us. I, you know, I, fault finding, we're great at. 
seeing the inconsistency of what they say they believe and what they do. I can, I can see that in your life so easily, but it's, it's like what, what Jesus said, that I have a hard time seeing that speck in your eye when I've got a log stuck in my own. It's very hard to identify hypocrisy in your own life. Now this morning, what I want us to do is for us to face and confront hypocrisy in your life, in your own life. You say, I'm not feeling very comfortable about that. You shouldn't. And to face and address hypocrisy in the church. That's not comfortable either. But when we do, we help move forward truth and unity and love and a pure gospel that the world needs to see. It's not all easy living the Christian life. So we face hypocrisy. Four ways that I want us to see from this passage that we do that. First, we face the problem. The problem is hypocrisy. We would identify that by saying a hypocrite is someone who plays the part. In other words, that's not really them. They're play acting. They're play acting. So you believe one thing and you do another. Now, can you see how that all of us get guilty of that? Because I can say to you, I believe this book. Okay? All of it. I believe all of it. Well, (laughs) as you may happen to watch my life and examine my life, my life doesn't always match up practically to what I say I believe. And you don't either. So that doesn't mean that I don't want to, but it's almost as, as Paul describes in Romans 7. He, he says, oh, wretched man that I am. He said, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. Who shall deliver me from this? It's a frustration that we work through. All of us struggle with that, with hypocrisy. We usually don't have a problem, as I said, seen in the lives of others. We struggle to see it in our own lives. And, and Peter here has got a, a, a big problem because he has traveled from Jerusalem up into Syria. If you look on a map, you travel north, and of course Syria and uh, Galatia, where he's writing the letter to, uh, these are hotbeds of uh, a lot of conflict today. Uh, so Antioch, so we call Syrian Antioch. And this is the church which, which is full of Gentiles. Now, this is, when they say the circumcision group, that means the Jews. The uncircumcision, which they also call the sinners, the Gentiles. Now, most of us here, I think, are Gentiles. We are non-Jews. And all through God's unfolding plan of the gospel, he did it through the Jewish people. But there came a point that and we read this in the Gospel of John, that the Gospel opened up to all the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amazing verse. So this church is a combination of men and women and young people and Jews, and Gentiles, people of different nations, and backgrounds, and races. That's the way the church is supposed to look. That's the way it should look. 
That's the way this church looked. Now, if you were to go and look in the church in Jerusalem, it didn't look that way because most everybody in Jerusalem, they were Jews. But you go to this church in Syria, and it is just, it is full of all kinds of people. So Peter comes up for a visit. Paul's already there. This is kind of his home church. And Peter comes up, and he's eating with Gentiles. He's eating with Jews. He's eating with everybody. And back in this time, almost all of their get-togethers were centered around food. They, they would have meals together. They would, they would eat midday meal. They would eat evening meal together. They would gather together. They'd share the Lord's Supper. Now, typically, Jews wouldn't do that. Uh, Jews would have to go through their ceremonial washing because they may have touched a Gentile. Okay, you got to understand this. Now you say, why, why did God put all those rules and laws in the past? All of those were to show the purity and the holiness that he expected out of his people. And all of those laws were pointing to Christ. Once Christ came and fulfilled all the law, then that was no longer needed. But a lot of these Jews... You know what? Tradition. You've heard that? Tradition. <laughs> now, all traditions aren't bad, right? We have traditions. We enjoy traditions. But all tradition is not truth. So just because you've done it always this way before does not make it right. And, and so now that there has been a, a, a tremendous change that has taken place, these Jews going back to washing their hands and making a big deal about that is, is going to be a problem. So up here we have, everything's fine. Peter comes up, and Peter doesn't have a problem. Peter's eating with everyone. But now, some, he says, some men from James. James is the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And we found out from our last study on this that they're probably not representing James very well or the church. That these, these people that have come up, come up and holier than thou. Oh, we can't. We can't do that. We can't do that. We can't just eat with everybody. And so, uh, what will people say? Do you know what people are thinking back in Jerusalem? Peter. What? So, what Peter does, it says he slowly, he has been in the habit, and, and the, the idea is he's been in the habit of every day eating with everybody. And now, he's slowly kind of drawing back this way, and he's not eating any longer with the Gentiles. So this is what's taking place. And what, what's pretty amazing that when Paul confronts him about this is that, that Peter knows better. If you read in the, the story, there's a, a tremendous story in Acts chapter 10 about the whole message of how this gospel the fact that Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, he rose again the third day, and he offers eternal life to all who will believe. All who will believe. And this is how he opened it up to the Gentiles. Peter was in a, a coastal town along the Mediterranean called, called Joppa. And, and north of there was a fortress, a seaport uh, called Caesarea. And in Caesarea, there was a man by the the name of Cornelius, who was a high-ranking military guy. And the Lord is working in bringing Cornelius, a Gentile, a Roman, to salvation. 
Now, normally, a Jew was, would not even be open to giving the gospel to a non-Jew. So he has this dream. He falls into a trance, Peter uh, does, on the rooftop in Joppa. And the Lord has this sheet uh, full of all kinds of animals. And he, he takes his sheet and lays out all these animals in front of Peter. And he says, Peter, rise up, <clears throat> kill and eat. And do you remember what uh, Peter says? He says, not so, Lord, which is a contradiction in terms. You know, not so, Lord. Okay, Lord, you're the authority of my life, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> no, because you got animals in there that aren't clean. Jews only eat clean animals. So if you want to know what I'm talking about, read Leviticus, because it'll tell you all the animals you can't eat and can't eat. And the Lord was establishing a purity and a focus of his holiness through that. But now, what the Lord is He's given Peter this dream, and he, and, he, and he did this three times. Rise, kill, and eat. So now there's a knock on the door. Someone has sent, uh, Cornelius has sent someone. I want you to come. So Peter goes all the way up the coast to Caesarea, meets Cornelius, and leads all of these Gentiles to Christ. Okay, so... The Lord said, Peter, don't say anything is unclean anymore. If I've made it, it's clean, okay? That's his point. And Peter has seen this. He knows better. He has been at the Jerusalem Council where they said, we are not going to take all of the, the Jewish traditions, rituals, hand-washing, circumcision, and put that burden on the Gentiles. But this is what happens is that He's caught into this. Certain men from James. You know, and it's always easier to, I feel that people put you on a guilt trip because they have either traditions, we've always done it this way before, which I think don't change anything just because, well, I haven't thought about it yet. But there are a lot of things that you have made habit or tradition that aren't right. Okay? <laughs> so... It, it pays to examine. We talk about a higher standard, a stricter standard. Well, these Jews would say, well, we need to have hand washing, ceremonial cleansing, do all these things. It's just a higher standard. But because you're more strict in your Christian life or because you're more, more uh, ritualistic or have more traditions does not make it a higher standard. The highest standard in the Christian life is not keeping rules. The highest standard in the Christian life is a four-letter word, L-O-V-E. That's the standard in the Christian life, love. And I think there is a certain attractiveness to legalism, to keeping a lot of rules, to having a lot of traditions, to having really high standards. That, that, now, there's nothing wrong with having high standards. I want you to understand that. But when you see that as how you measure your spirituality, then it becomes a problem. And that's what was happening here. Probably for Peter, he was feeling this pressure, fear, control, and so now he is separating. So that's the problem, the problem of hypocrisy. It would be nice if this whole thing of hypocrisy was neatly contained in one little place, but it's not. And we see the second point is this, the effect that it has. 
there is an effect when, when you have hypocrisy in your life or in the lives of the church. It has an effect. And there are three big effects that I see. One, the gospel is compromised. What has happened here is that the moment you add anything to faith, you have compromised the whole gospel. In other words, if you say, we know that we're saved by believing. Believing in Jesus. That's it. You say, is that all? That's it. How do you know you're going to heaven? By believing in Jesus. Faith. Faith alone. Faith alone. Say, but, but don't you need to be baptized? Baptism is a good thing. But faith alone. Not faith plus baptism. What about going to church regularly? At least three out of four or half the time, faith plus going to church. Is going to church a good thing? I hope you think so. What about reading your Bible? What about, what about praying? You could list a zillion good things. The moment you add one thing to faith, you have changed the whole nature of it, and it's no longer the pure gospel. We've got to see that. Faith alone. Faith alone. But what about good works? People get really nervous about this. They say, but faith alone. What about good works? We need good works in there. Here's how I say it. Faith alone, but faith is never alone. I just confused you, didn't I? It's faith alone, but faith is never alone. Because genuine faith always with it come good works. If you have a real, authentic, genuine faith, people are going to see it. Works come out of it. But it's not faith plus anything. And, and you add one little part of your human effort, of your good deeds, of your church membership, of your reading your Bible, or that you keep the Ten Commandments, you no longer have, by grace through faith, you no longer have the gospel. And that's why when we read here that Paul has said, You're, you are no longer in line with the truth of the gospel. You, you, have cha- you have fundamentally changed Christianity itself. In other words, we no longer have Christianity. We no longer have Christ. We no longer have heaven. We no longer have hope. By adding one little thing. And what Peter has done is he has allowed them to kind of add in the hand washing, add in the circumcision, add in these other things. Become a Jew first because really then you'll be a better Christian. If you do these things, you'll be a better Christian. And this is, the, this is what they face. So the problem, the effect, is the gospel is compromised and people are led astray. So the three effects. One is the gospel is compromised. We no longer have the gospel. This is not Christianity. Number two, people are led astray. Peter, by your action, not only have you compromised the integrity of the good news message of faith, you have led other people astray. And, and even Barnabas, who is a solid leader, Barnabas is the one who's mentored the Apostle Paul. How could Barnabas be led astray? Here's the point, folks. You can be led astray. I can be led astray. You think your pastor can be led astray? It's happened before. 
Okay, it's happened before. And I think that we need to realize that Satan does not, in fact, I think he probably goes after people of influence with more intensity than he does with the average person because he knows the effect. The effect is if I can get one person off, it's going to cause other people to get off. And so now we, we've gone from a personal problem that we've got with Peter to we've got a big church problem in Syria. Our whole church is being affected by this. So the gospel is compromised, people are being led astray, and the third one is the church is being divided. Have you ever seen division in a church? It usually starts with wrong doctrine or wrong teaching. Now, people don't get all worked up about that. Oh, it's just doctrine. (laughs) But doctrine affects the way you live. It can't help but affect the way you live. What you believe affects the way you live. And when people are living in conflict, you have disunity and you have destruction. You have some of the strongest churches that we find in the New Testament that today don't even exist. There are churches across America that at one time were thriving, vibrant, gospel-preaching, gospel-centered, missionary-sending churches that these churches no longer exist. And I can tell you, churches are not destroyed by persecution from the outside. You know what that does to a church? Do you know what persecution from the outside does to the church typically? Now, it it maybe reduces the numbers, (laughs) initially but it strengthens the church we find this happening over in asia we find it happening in in indonesia we find it happening in china we find it happening in eastern eastern european countries that typically what happens is when the church comes under intense attack and persecution it is strengthened it's bolstered here's how churches are destroyed you allow false teaching to come in and then it, it begins to cause people to live contrary to what they have said they believe. This is what's happened. Peter says he believes in grace through faith alone, right? He says that. He's living in conflict because he's not eating with Gentiles. And it's dividing the church. And pretty soon it divides and divides and divides. You have no, you have no witness. You have no church. It's how God will divide your family, how God will divide your marriage. The same way, Satan will divide those things. So division comes. Now, I've thought, the way, the way I would like to describe my, my marriage and my family with my kids and my church, no conflict. I don't want conflict. <laughs> Wouldn't you like that? Now, Diane and I have never had conflict. Um, Not this morning, anyway. No. (laughs) People have asked, you've had your kids live with you for a few months. How's it been? It's been great. So far, so good. (laughs) But you know what? I don't want conflict in a church. That's the last thing I ever want for Valley Community Church, to have conflict in this church. I don't want it in my marriage. I don't want it with my kids. I don't want it with my the ones I love. But I can't control all that. Conflict comes. 
you've had it in your marriage, you've had it with your kids, you've had it at work, and you've seen it in church. We're not going to avoid it. The key is how we deal with it. We face up to it. We face up to it biblically and responsibly. That's, that's what we do. And this is what Paul does. He faces up to it in a responsible way. You need to do the same in, in every relationship that you have is to face up to the hypocrisy, hypocrisy that's taking place. Now, if you're going to have conflict, don't have it with God, <laughs> okay? You say, but I just want to make everyone happy. You're not going to make everyone happy. You'll never make everyone happy. And, and if you try to make everyone happy, you're going to be the perfect people pleaser. And it's like everyone in the world has got a little choke chain on you and they're yanking you this way and yanking this way. I'm trying to please you and I'm trying to please you. And, and pretty soon you're going to be a mess, an absolute mess. You cannot please everyone. What is the, what is the cause of all of this? And, and I think if you look back to chapter 1 in your Bibles, of Galatians in verse 10. This really kind of tells you what the problem is. Paul says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. (laughs) So here's what he's saying. You cannot be a God pleaser and a people pleaser. You can't. Now, you can be a people pleaser as long as you're pleasing God first. So I would say that, that, that kind of flows, doesn't it, with the great commandment to love the Lord with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself? If the very first thing I do is I got to ask myself, does this please God? Does this please God? And it doesn't matter, folks, if the whole world stands against you. You please God. I'd rather be pleasing God the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of me, the plan for all the future, and not be in conflict with God and be in conflict with the whole world. So that has to be established first. And Paul was saying that in chapter 1, verse 10, because he said, you know, if you, if you want me, if I'm going to serve people and, and please people apart from pleasing God first, it'll never work. So we face the problem, we see the effects. The third point I'd like to make is the cause of hypocrisy, and that is what we just read, peer pressure. Peer pressure. So if the whole class jumps off the cliff, are you going to jump off the cliff? You said that to your kids. How many of you have heard someone say that to you before? Okay. Peer pressure. That's not just a teenager thing. Okay, these aren't, as far as I can tell, these aren't teenagers. These aren't just little kids. But do you realize how much every one of us are affected by what people think about us? Well, I don't care what people think. Yes, you do. (laughs) It's the way you're wired. It it, it is by nature we are self-centered and we fear men, not God. And, and there, is, there are two sides of the same coin. One is a lust for approval. I want you to like me. 
Okay? Now, I won't admit it because it sounds bad. I want you to like me. And I fear you rejecting me. The fear of rejection, the lust for approval. You watch kids do it. Because when kids do it, it's pretty raw. I mean, it's just like blatant. Adults are a little more sophisticated. You know, how I dress, how I look. It's called image management. Okay? How, how am I looking? It's just a subconscious. It's going on all the time. What are people going to think about the way I look? About what I do? About what I say? All of these things affect people's opinion. And we do care about that. You may want to say, I don't care about it, but we do care about it. And it's a vulnerability that all of us have. Now, you remember the story when Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. And all my disciples will be scattered. What did Peter say? Remember what Peter said? He said, Lord, I will never forsake you. I will never deny you. Do you think Peter was sincere? I do. You know, I've been sincere about a lot of things I've said to God too. But, but what happened is, is, he is he is following from a distance. He's in the courtyard of Caiaphas. Jesus is on trial. He's warming himself at the fire. And a, and a girl asks him, aren't you one of his followers? Same guy. Same guy. I think he genuinely meant what he said. He loves the Lord. And eventually, Peter did die for Christ. Eventually. But you think in a weak moment, peer pressure, peer pressure, fear, fear of what's going to happen. He says, no, I don't know him. Don't know him. Three times he said, don't know him. The Lord said, by the time the cock crows, you have denied denied me three times it was early morning he hears the rooster crow and he and he he reminds him of that and it says he went out and wept bitterly how could i do that how could i do that how could peter do this right in the middle of all the church people i'll tell you how he could do it the same way you could do it same way i could do it i'm human (laughs) i'm made of flesh I love the Lord, I love the Lord, I love the Lord, I really do. But then I turn right around and I show how much I love myself. I show how much I love myself. I fear God, I fear God, I fear God. And then I, show, I turn right, right around and I show how I, I fear my friends. I fear what they think. I fear what they're going to say. I fear what James is going to say back in Jerusalem. I fear all these things. And all of a sudden I'm behaving in a way. And, I, and, and that's why Paul says in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am. Folks, what I'm talking about is a real spiritual battle that you face every day of your life. And every church will face. Someone once said that to me, it's a good little quip. Two choices on the shelf. Pleasing God or pleasing self. 
We make up our minds. So let me conclude with this. We've talked about the problem. It's in all of us. The effect is far-reaching, and it's, it's significant. The cause is we desire to please men more than we desire to please God. That's it. But finally, the solution to hypocrisy. And I think the answer is this, is bringing it back to pleasing God first. Will you slip? Will you fall? Will you fail? Yes, you will. The church, will the church slip? Will the church struggle through these things? Yes, it will. We are human. And if Paul struggled and Peter struggled and Barnabas struggled, I'll guarantee you we will struggle. You'll struggle in your marriage. You'll struggle in your family. You'll struggle at work. We'll struggle in this church. But I believe this, that Paul did the right thing in courageously confronting, standing up to his face, the hypocrisy. And my challenge to you is today that you are courageous in confronting hypocrisy in your life, in your own life, as you look in the mirror and you confront it with those that you love, that we do this in our church. You say, well, why didn't Paul go to Peter privately? I think he probably already did. Uh, it doesn't say that in that text. Of course, when you read through things, you don't, it doesn't say everything that happened. But in Galatians 6, 1, Paul says this. He says, if you see someone overtaken in a fault, go restore that person in a, in a spirit of meekness. In other words, you do it personally. And I would say this, whenever, whenever uh, I've got a problem with a person, I go to them. I don't, I don't make it public. To me, you always keep it as small as you can for as long as you can. That's the way you do it. Now, this had, had escalated. They had had numerous talks, I'm sure, they had a whole council in Jerusalem about this. Now we're coming back again, and it's public, and it's causing public division, and everybody knows about it. Now everybody needs to know about it. And so he addresses it. You could say, well, wasn't Paul pretty, the kind of guy that would just bend over backwards? He said, I'm all things to all men. You know, if, 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 if they're eating this, I'll eat with them. I'll, 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 I'll be very flexible. And Paul was incredibly flexible. You don't make a big deal about everything. But this was a big deal because it affected the very nature of Christianity, the very nature of the church. I have written down in my journal, notebook, many times this. I probably go through it weekly. My resolution Number one, do the right thing. Do the right thing, no matter what. Doesn't matter if it costs you everything. Costs you your job, costs you your life, costs you everything you own. You do what pleases God. Now, do I do that every day? Say, Pastor, do you do that every day? No, I don't. No, I don't. But that is my aim. Paul said, I make it my aim. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is my aim. So in a conflict, in a crisis, when I've got to make a decision, number one, I do the right thing before God. Number two, do it in the right way. There are pr so many principles 
to follow, that, that not just do the right thing, you don't just do it brashly, you do the right thing in the right way. Number three, do it with the right spirit. You know, if you've got an attitude about it, if Paul had an attitude towards Peter like, you know, I'm righteous, you're wrong, and, and we take joy in condemning and exposing, you know, I don't see that with Paul. You know, you can do that too. It's, aha, look at you. I caught you, you hypocrite. You know what? If I struggle with hypocrisy, and Peter struggled with it, and Barnabas struggled with it, we all struggle with it. <laughs> so, before he starts saying, you hypocrite, you hypocrite. My joy is not in exposing someone's error. The joy is in restoring. It's, it's in restoration. That's the joy. So do the right thing for God. To please God above all else, you got a, you got a decision to make at work about something that's happened in your life, about how to respond to something. You do the right thing before God. That's it. Number two, you do it in the right way. Number three, you do it with the right spirit. And number four, you leave the results with God. You leave it with Him. And then you go on. That's hard to do sometimes, but if you've done the right thing and you've done it the right way, you've done it with the right spirit, you've done all you can do, you leave it with the Lord. The Lord is fully capable taking care of things the question we ask is God pleased Paul writes to the church in Ephesus find out what pleases the Lord chapter 5 verse 10 find out what pleases the Lord that's why we read this we read his word find out what pleases the Lord and I can tell you this that my little grandson, who's three years old, my little granddaughter, who's a year old, and their old grandfather all struggle with the same thing, wanting to please self. We all do. And my prayer is this, that the aim, the ambition of our lives will be to please God. Recognize the battle we face personally, marriage, family, church. And ask yourself this question, who is biggest in my life? Who is biggest in my life? Is it God and His glory? Or is it people? Who am I trying to please more than anything else? Is it God? Or is it people? Let's bow together as we pray. Father, we are so grateful you give us your word. Reading through a text like this is uncomfortable because it exposes what we struggle with. Hypocrisy. Lord, it's in all of us. When we live differently than what we say we believe, we're living contrary to the truth of the gospel. Father, we know that as long as we live in this world, we'll have this struggle, but may we daily acknowledge who we want to please.
Lord, give us grace for that. Help us to have the spirit of grace in all that we say and all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.